Power from on high, Jesus ascended. We're continuing in this uh, study, in this uh, series of thoughts. Uh, and really, last week we looked at the, the kind of uh, the taster, really, the transfiguration. If you were able to be here, uh, then you'd, have, uh, you'd be aware that we were looking at a period in Jesus' life when he was changed beyond belief, which gave us a taster of what was to come on this occasion that we're looking at this afternoon. So really, we went back one step. If you weren't able to be here, I encourage you, get to the website, download it. You can get to here uh, so that you can start to build up the journey that we're taking. What we've got now is um, the account in the book of Acts, which is the, if you like, it's the historical description of Jesus ascending. And uh, it's written by Luke. And uh, we read in the book, in, uh, in Luke chapter, sorry, Acts chapter 1, verse 1, we read this, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all, the, all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instruction through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. So there we have the, if you like, uh, Luke is right up front as he writes this account. He's saying, look, Theophilus, uh, significant, influential man that he's writing to. He's saying, I've already spoken to you, I've already written to you about what Jesus did while he was here. Now I'm going to continue, effectively, keep this in mind. It is the most, I want to suggest, it's the most important idea, the most important concept when it comes to the book of Acts and it comes to the ascension. If the book of Luke is about what Jesus was doing while he was here on earth, what he began to do, do you see what he, the words that he used, the things that Jesus began to do and to teach? That's, that's began to do. What does that mean? How can you possibly say he began to do when the book of Luke ends with Jesus dying? <laughs> Surely that's everything that he did. Well, Luke has a different concept. He's saying, look, the first book, chapter 1, Theophilus, was about the things that he began to do while he was here. Now he continues to do in his absence. That is, in human terms, extraordinary. It's bizarre to claim that, isn't it? I cannot do things while I am not here. I can't do that. You know, I, I, you know, there are jobs at home that need to get done, which will not get done if I am not at home. It's quite likely they won't get done while I'm at home as well, but it's, they're not going to get done while I'm not at home, are they? But what Luke is suggesting and opening up to us is the idea that Jesus, in his uniqueness, begins a work while he was here and continues a work in his absence. That's the way he starts the book. I, I, I would suggest to you that that idea, if you can kind of capture that, hold on to that, the idea of Jesus continuing to work is one of the underlying ideas about Jesus ascended. Just kind of pocket it. Make it the idea that you hold on to through the next series of weeks as we work it through. Look at the way the, the uh, account unfolds. We come to uh, verse 11. 
Jesus is talking to them in various ways. And then we come to verse 11, uh, and uh, sorry, verse 9. We'll go from verse 9. After he'd said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking up intently into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. So I want you to, um, just for a moment, imagine that you were there. Imagine that you're in that gathering of people who are witnessing this unique occasion, the claim set, one of the central claims of the message of the gospel of Jesus is that he came into this world, he died, he rose again, and then he returned to heaven. Imagine that you are there for a moment, standing amongst people, you've listened to Jesus speaking in a way which you know that he was there, now he isn't there, he's gone, you've seen him in a remarkable way disappear out of sight as he is in some way raised and then disappears. And then all of a sudden there are these two guys dressed in white standing. What do they say? Men of Galilee, they said. Why do you stand here looking into the sky? (laughs) You know, part of me thinks, why why are we looking into the sky? Are you really asking that question? Uh, Really? Are you asking that question? Because Jesus has just disappeared into the sky. That's why we're looking into the sky. You know, part of the quest, part of the sense of the question, you think, that's just a daft question to ask. The most remarkable occasion has actually happened. We have seen Jesus rise, and now we see him disappear. Uh, He's gone into the sky, and now you're asking me why I'm looking into the sky? The most amazing thing has happened, and now you're asking something important. You're making the the, the very first statement that you are making to us. Why are you continuing to look at a remarkable event? That would suggest to me that either those messengers are absolutely stupid, because it's obvious why they were looking into the sky, or there is something way, way more significant as to why they ask that question. I would suggest, if they are messengers from God, then it is the latter. But I think I would also encourage you to say that there is reason from what we read before to know that the question has a real purpose. In a way, it's a little bit like... um, another question or another statement that Jesus makes as, um, as he is risen. Earlier on in uh, the Gospel of John, we read this. Mary is brokenhearted. She's gone to the tomb and she's hoped to go and to care for the body of Jesus. She finds the tomb open. She's absolutely devastated. She hears a voice speaking to her who she believes to be uh, the gardener. Jesus said to her, Mary. This conversation is going on up to this point in time. Uh, And Mary is obviously, whatever she is, she isn't looking at the person. 
who's speaking to her, this conversation's going on, she says, Mary. Now this suddenly, Mary realizes that voice, number one, maybe I begin to recognize that voice. Number two, this person knows me because they've used my name. Mary, Jesus said. She turned and, uh, towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me. Uh, if you've got an older version of the Bible, it would say something along the lines of, do not touch me. It's kind of a strange thing to say, isn't it? Do not hold on to me. Do not touch me. Is that because Jesus was reactive or something at that point in time, having risen? Or is there something more? Jesus says, do not hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. <laughs> Jesus is speaking in the garden already to Mary about this event. And he's saying, listen, Mary, the significance of my resurrection for you is not about keeping me here on this earth. Don't hold on to me. Don't try and grab me and keep me here. In a similar way, the apostles and the followers of Jesus in Acts chapter 1 are in danger of another kind of aspect of that. If Mary was in danger of keeping Jesus here, and the significance of Jesus' resurrection was by keeping him on the earth, then these were in danger of thinking it's all about Jesus up there. It's all about what's gone on, this event. Either of those misplace and misinterpret and misjudge the significance of what has just gone on. I want to suggest that there are three aspects of this particular event which point to uh, really important issues for us to think about. The, rest, the ascension of Jesus, number one, authenticates a life. It authenticates a life. Number two, it initiates mission. And number three, it proclaims judgment. Now, there's loads more that the ascension does, which we're going to be looking at over these next few weeks, but those three, we're just going to start this week by saying it authenticates a life, firstly. Um, there's a TV program, I think I mentioned it the other, month, the other week, actually. Uh, it's called uh, Treasure Detectives. Treasure Detectives. I love the program because it kind of takes me back uh, to one of my first jobs when I first left school. When I left school, all I wanted to do was be a cabinet maker. Uh, so I started working uh, as a cabinet maker. We started working with antiques. And I started getting into the whole world of antiques and all history and all of that kind of thing. And uh, uh, this uh, TV program uh, really brings it all back. What they do is they uh, look at certain things that people bring and they say, here's, well, in this case, this week, it was the cufflinks that were given to Neil Armstrong 
by Richard Nixon after a successful trip to the moon. No, sorry, they were given beforehand at a dinner in preparation for the trip to the moon, Apollo 11. They'd been given by the grandfather to the grandson. And uh, he brought them out. And, and I mean, obviously, what's more, Neil Armstrong actually took the cufflinks that he was given by Richard Nixon on that mission trip. Uh, so here's potentially a pair of cufflinks and a tie clip that have been to the moon and come back. That, that is pretty rare. There are not many pairs of cufflinks that have been to the moon. There are not many pairs of cufflinks that were given to Neil Armstrong. There were not many pairs of cufflinks that were given by Richard Nixon. The big word that keeps coming up again and again as this, story, as this investigation goes on is provenance. Proving where it has come from. Proving where it has come from. And uh, the whole investigation goes on. Sadly, in this particular case, what they actually do is prove that these cufflinks weren't the cufflinks that were given uh, by Richard Nixon to Neil Armstrong and then were given by Neil Armstrong to this head chef who was his granddad. They were just a pair of cufflinks which were available for NASA um, uh, trips around NASA during that particular period of time. So what was potentially being talked about as half a million dollars worth of cufflinks and tie clip became relatively trivial. The provenance, proving where it came from, proved to be of no worth. It didn't actually come from there. Just think about what the ascension of Jesus does. I've had many a conversation over the years. I just can't believe. I just can't believe in the virgin birth. I understand that. In human terms, it is, is an astoundingly outrageous claim. At what's more, in human terms, it is an impossible claim to prove, isn't it? Because it depends on a single event in secret. I can't believe in the miracles of Jesus. I can't believe in the authoritative teaching of Jesus. The ascension is the provenance, or rather it's the event that gives the provenance for the claims of who Jesus is. See that? So all of a sudden, like the other uh, investigation on treasure detectives, when they investigated um, Stradivarius violin, I think that was the one that I mentioned the other week, and they turn around to this guy and they say, do you know what? This is a real Stradivarius violin. It is worth probably $12 million. He was glad because he'd bought it as part of his musical foundation and then was going to lend it to a teenage 
girl to play the violin. That's kind of brave, I think. Um, But it's genuine. Because we've done all of the work. You know, it might say Stradivarius on the label inside. But that doesn't make it necessarily a Stradivarius. You can get a bit of paper. You can cover it in tea. You can stain it a bit. You can stick it in. And it can look like an old label. That doesn't mean it's a Stradivarius. But a whole load of other investigation says this is a Stradivarius. They did an MRI scan on the violin. In a sense, the ascension of Jesus is like the MRI scan on Jesus. It's the final proof. It's the event that takes place that says everything else that is claimed, which is really difficult to prove, is valid because of this event which is visible and public. The Christian faith is not some kind of faith which is a nice set of ideas. It is that. It is that. It's not crazy, horrible, awful ideas. It is dependent upon historical events. It is dependent upon a single life. It is dependent upon witnesses to that life. So when Jesus claims to be born of a virgin, when the New Testament claims that Jesus is able to intervene in ways which are remarkable, it is this event which says to you and to me, I can trust all of those other things because of this, along with other things that we can come to over time. But then, Jesus is not just a wise teacher, but then if he is the son of the living God, then the wisdom of his teaching takes on a whole other set of power and authority, doesn't it? He is somebody who might be able to intervene, but his intervention in this world is far more if he is who he claims to be, which is what this says he is. He becomes authoritative in this world because of this event. He becomes authoritative. Paul puts it like this later on in Acts chapter 17. He says, in, 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 as people, as human um, Human beings make the journey of, let's put it like this, of misplaced worship where they're worshipping all sorts of other things, where they're worshipping creation, where they're worshipping idols, uh, all of those kind of things as humanity is making this journey. Paul goes on to say, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. There's a point where that's ignorance which God overlooks. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. The ascension of Jesus as an event in history makes a demand on you and me today. It demands the authority of Jesus in our lives. It says, in a world which which says that there cannot be any authority which demands which makes demands of me in this world. 
And part of me would say, do you know, part of me agrees with that postmodern perspective. There is a part of me that agrees. There is nothing in this world which has the authority to make demands of me, ultimate demands, absolute demands, complete demands. There is nothing in this world which has that kind of power to make an absolute demand of all humanity. There is nothing. But if there is a power that breaks into this world from outside of this world, then maybe that does have the power to make demands of me. And that's what Paul says. It's actually the the proof of the, of the identity of Jesus which demands you and me to repent makes that demand of us. So that's the first thing. It authenticates a life. Second thing, it authenticates mission. <laughs> How can you know? Jesus. You want me to follow Jesus? You want me to believe in Jesus? Just Wouldn't it be easier, and maybe this is what Mary was alluding to without actually saying it, if she'd kept Jesus in this world, bearing in mind that Jesus has now risen, he's risen from the dead, he's now living, he's not going to die again, wouldn't it be easier if Jesus was here? Wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it make our job so much easier? You know, if there was this one person in human history who had lived since AD 1, 0, if he was still living today, wouldn't it make the job of following Jesus so much easier? If we could travel to wherever Jesus happened to be in the world at that particular point in time. If Jesus was now 2,100, no, 2,013 years old, or whatever it would be, if Jesus was that old in this world at this point in time, wouldn't it make our job of saying, follow Jesus, so much easier? <laughs> well, Jesus, he'd seen that. He said, listen, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they'll never be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. They weren't convinced then. And the idea of Jesus being present now would be no more demand upon us because of who we are. Not because of who he is, but because of who we are. Because of our resistance to any idea that makes demands of us. Rather, what Jesus is saying is this. By rising from the dead, there is a step that takes place that gives the opportunity for unleashing, the unleashing of a new and sustained presence and power of God which initiates mission in the whole of this world. It unleashes, that's why we've called our series, power from on high. It's what Jesus says in Luke. He describes his return to heaven as unleashing power from on high. At the point where Jesus is talking to uh, the, the, the apostles, the disciples, and all of the followers on this particular occasion, 
He's actually telling them in verse 4, on one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. Wait in Jerusalem. Wait in Jerusalem for the gift. Now, we said earlier, it was a stupid comment, or it was profound, the comment that the two witnesses said, when they said, why are you looking up into the sky? Look at what they actually say. Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the, into the sky? They, the outcome of that is they do what? They go back to Jerusalem. And they wait. And then what we see is the unleashing of a new power of God within his people. A new power of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. An unleashing which just pours out by the presence of the Spirit amongst the people of God. Now, hear this. It is a power which has a greater authority of the presence of God than simply Jesus' individual presence. Jesus already said, even if somebody who's risen from the dead, they won't believe. In other words, the presence of Jesus does not assure our belief in Him. But the power of the Holy Spirit challenging us, speaking to us, engaging with us, does. That can break in. That can speak remarkably powerfully in this way. (laughs) I don't know what the time is in Argentina right now. I'm guessing it's probably sometime in the morning. I don't know what the time is in Japan now, but it's certainly sometime late on at night. It is entirely feasible. Even right now, even right now, that the power of the presence of Jesus through the Holy Spirit is speaking right now to somebody in Argentina so that they are being challenged and changed and repenting at the very same moment as the power of the presence of the Holy Spirit is speaking to somebody in here so that they are being challenged and changed. How remarkable is that? That is the unleashing of a new power of the presence of God in this world. Jesus couldn't have done that. He could not have done that because he was only ever in one place at one time. But the unleashing of the mission of Jesus through the ascension of Jesus opens up what he promised. Verse uh, verse 7 of John chapter 16 says this, I tell you, it is good that I'm going away. It's good that I'm going away. That sounds bizarre, doesn't it? Who's your best friend? Imagine that person going away forever. 
and they turn around and say it's good. It's not good. It can never be good in human terms. It can never be good because we only have one presence and one being and one person. When I'm gone, I'm gone. When you're gone, you're gone from the presence of somebody else. And yet what Jesus does is he unleashes a new presence because unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Why do you believe today if you do? Why don't you believe today if you don't? You believe today if you do. Your life has been changed today if it has been changed because the presence of the Spirit of God has spoken to you (laughs) and me. You don't believe today because that has not yet happened. That is how God engages personally, individually. It's what we worshipped before in our song. (laughs) Thank you for who you are because you are a God who can speak personally. Because you are mindful of us as individuals. Jesus says, unless I go away, unless this event in Acts chapter 1 happens, I can't send the advocate. Thirdly, if the ascension of Jesus authenticates a life, initiates mission, the third thing it does is it proclaims judgment. Stop and consider what we are seeing. Just stop. We're on that mountaintop again. We're just watching Jesus leave this earth and go into heaven. What has he done beforehand? What has Jesus actually done? Well, he sat down with us. He's at bread. He's cooked some fish on the lakeside. He's drunk. You know the kind of, um, you know the Scooby-Doo thing where the, the, the ghosts kind of drink and it just kind of all falls out of them. That doesn't happen with Jesus, does it? He drinks. He eats. He talks. He says to Thomas, come and touch the marks. That's an important thing, isn't it? Come and touch the marks. He's already said to Mary, don't touch me. Don't hold on to me. Then he comes and says to Thomas, come and touch the marks in my hands. It's not about I'm some kind of weird kind of uh, specter that can't be touched. I'm human flesh, but don't hold that human flesh in this world. That human flesh is destined for somewhere else. But what we have just seen on that mountaintop is human flesh enter heaven. I'll say that again because it is so profound. We have seen human flesh enter heaven. That is mind-blowing. Because human flesh cannot come into the presence of God. Because it will be wiped out by the glory and the majesty of of being in the presence of God and yet not being worthy. What does human flesh going into the presence of God tell us? That human flesh was righteous. Jesus said this beforehand. 
when the Spirit comes, when the Advocate comes, he will prove to the world to be in the wrong about sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin, because it doesn't believe in me. Sin is not believing in Jesus, at least how Jesus defines it. Secondly, it teaches about righteousness. Righteousness because I am going to the Father. In other words, Jesus' ability to go to the Father is because he is righteous. Because he is pure, because he is perfect. Thirdly, about judgment, because this world stands condemned. Why does this world stand condemned? Because it doesn't believe in Jesus and because it doesn't have the righteousness to go into the presence of God. Those two things. Then it, therefore it stands condemned. You and me, we stand condemned outside of Jesus because we don't believe in him and because we don't have the righteousness to go into the presence of God. Paul puts it like this. Or rather, verse 11 says it like this. Look at how, what verse, Acts chapter 1, verse 11 says. This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way as you have seen him go into heaven. He's going to come back in the same way as you have seen him go. I don't, I don't think that what Luke has in mind there is the literal idea of Jesus suddenly kind of appearing in that particular place out of the sky. I think the idea that he has in mind is this. Human flesh leaving this world and going into heaven is going to return as human flesh to this world. So right at the very beginning, right at the very beginning, where Jesus has just gone into heaven, the messengers of God are throwing out an idea and saying this, you need to be ready. Because that human flesh that has gone is going to come back. So what? So what? Well, Paul puts it like this again in Acts chapter 17. He says this. He has set a day. God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. With justice. Righteousness, justice. In other words, I think that's a great idea. There is so much injustice in this world. It is not going to last forever. Jesus is going to resolve injustice. He's going to come back and he is going to judge the world with justice by the man he has, point, he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. In other words, the one who is raised from the dead and goes into heaven, human flesh in heaven, is going to return with a purpose. It's not like those messengers said, by the way, you need to know he's going to come back. It's setting the first step in preparation for us to say, the ascension of Jesus proclaims the coming judgment. It proclaims that. He's gone with a purpose. 
We're going to be looking at various other aspects of the great news of Jesus ascended. But just think about this. You've heard the kind of, I picked this up from a really great book I read on the ascension the other week. Uh, The idea of, um, you know, the whole kind of our man in Moscow or our man in wherever it might be. The idea of having an insight, having a voice, having a presence. Uh, You see it on the news, don't you? We're going to turn to our man in Beirut. (laughs) We have our man in heaven. We have our man in heaven. It's great news. Because now heaven is no longer, heaven is no longer the sole place of the presence of the spiritual power of God alone. Within heaven already resides human flesh, our man. Now, how is our man is what we're going to work out over these next weeks.